On this week's Devils in the Details, with Mason Mount having arrived at the club this week, David De Gea having departed for good, and Andre Onana's arrival looking imminent to replace him, it's been a busy week at Old Trafford. Today we'll touch on all of this and more. Aaron, we've got a big couple of episodes lined up for the next few weeks. What are we going to talk about today in the meantime? Yeah, let's let uh, the audience in on some of the admin we've been planning. So first of all, this is actually the second take of this episode because we had some audio issues on the first. Secondly, we've got a couple big things planned for you over the next few weeks. So next week, we have a very big guest coming on to talk with us about a big tactical concept in the game that... I don't think has really been covered that much in podcast form. I think it's kind of an understated topic, and we're really excited to do it. And then the week after, we have a special episode with two different guests, uh, one who is a specialist in all things Mason Mount, and one who is a specialist in all things Andre Onana. So we're really looking forward to both of those. And in the meantime, I think we're just going to talk about some different tactical concepts that revolve around these transfers, but don't directly relate to the individual players and what they do as much. Sounds good. I'm excited. This is the this is all news to me. <laughs> Let's talk about a few things that are related to the stuff we're going to talk about in future episodes, but maybe we wouldn't have hit on them otherwise, or at least we'll, we'll say they're fair game, even though maybe there's some overlap. We'll start with Mason Mount. I think we're all very excited about this. We had a sort of candid reaction to his transfer last week on the podcast. Today, we'll, we'll get a little more specific. We got a, a few questions that I liked about Mount. First and foremost, we got a question from Mia, probably more for your Mount episode. Yeah, probably, but we're doing it anyway. But do you think Mount, who from what I have heard and admittedly not seen, likes to move and find space around the box? And could that help get more out of Sancho and possibly Antony? Uh, Aaron, what do you make of this? What do you think? The short answer is yes. Um, The slightly longer answer is I think in many ways what you're going to see in our Mount episode is that uh, what United are getting here is in many ways a superset of the skill set of Ericsson and the skill set of Fred. So from Ericsson, you're going to get a lot of the build-up stuff, which we'll talk about later in this episode. But from Fred, what you're going to get is a lot of the counter-pressing and pressing movement, uh, as well as this innate sort of possession movement um, in sequences that involves bursting into space, giving yourself as an option, receiving and releasing the ball, Um just in good positions to make you more dangerous and uh, and allow playmakers more options on the ball. So if you look at Fred's game, I think one thing we talk about is that Fred doesn't really have a lot of the technical fundamentals on the ball. Fred does often share the pitch with players who do have a lot of technical proficiency if you look throughout his career. And I think as a result, he has a really good, no- uh, a really good understanding of how to move uh, to create space for others and to show for the ball Uh, especially in attacking areas. And so one specific example that you'll see of this is uh, when Sancho's cutting in, Fred will make a run between the center back and the fullback that allows Sancho to play the ball in behind quickly and therefore prevents Sancho from having to dribble past his man, which we know he struggles a lot doing. Um, And so Mount does a lot of things like that. I think Erickson doesn't quite have the burst and the energy to consistently be able to make aggressive movements like that throughout the match. And what that does is it helps Sancho's style. Like I said, Sancho likes to isolate fullbacks and then play quick passes in behind. It helps Anthony's style. Anthony's style is predicated upon cutting in, looking up, uh, being able to decide whether to shoot, pass sideways, or go for creative action. And so a lot of Anthony's game will improve in a situation where he has more options to pick out. Because obviously the optimal solution is to pick out someone in the box who's going to have a good shot between those three options. And so when you have more players who make good movements around the box, it makes these wingers who like to pass the ball, it it makes them more effective at what they try to do. And it leads to them making better decisions. It leads to them creating more chances. Yeah. And I'd I'd add on here, Mount is a far better technician and and, and far more technical than, or, or far more creative than the equivalent players who we've used in this role before. Uh, and I think that'll make a big difference. He's he's just a really good player, and he happens to be 
very good at receiving in advanced positions, happens to also be a relatively dynamic off-the-ball mover, um, and he's willing, which I would say Erickson and Bruno to a lesser extent, or at least in a different way, are not willing um, to make certain runs, specifically that run you, you described from Fred. That's not a run that Bruno or Erickson ever makes. It's one that Mount will make. I think that covers that. I think it's a good question. Um, I think we're going to talk at greater length about a different role that Mount can can play later on. We're going to come back to Mount, but I think let's let's move on to another transfer target. Mount obviously is a done deal. Rasmus Hoyland is not, but there's a lot of speculation here that United are going to move for Rasmus Hoyland, that he's the next transfer target after the Onana deal is done. We had a few questions here. Um, James Rolanti asked, in all honesty, would it be a disappointment for us to sign Hoyland right to sign Hoyland right now? I'm not that excited about him, but I'm very open to being convinced into liking him. Yeah, a little bit, I think. Um, especially if you sign Hoyland for a big fee. Um, obviously any, I'll start by saying Hoyland is a relatively talented player. And when you have relatively talented players, I think whether they should join United often depends on the deal that can be struck to get them. Um, so this, especially because Hoyland fits a need, United need a striker. Um, and so to talk a little bit more about Hoyland's game, uh, I think from what I've seen so far, and admittedly, I'm not fully done my watch through of him. I'll probably go a lot deeper if United do end up signing him, but, um, he has very good physical fundamentals. He's quick, he's tall, he's strong, he can hold off players and that allows him to be a decent player in hold up. Um, I think he can do hold up from both aerial and ground situations, which is good. Um, I think he is very quick running the channels. He loves to run the channels. Um, he's very good at running the channels, but I think he'll almost run the channels to the extent where he gives up possibly better off the ball runs between the actual center backs that can be really penetrative. Overall, I think that makes him a productive player in transition. I still think there are a lot of questions about him in a block. Atalanta also are a very interesting team. They're probably one of the most tactically unique teams in Europe. And so I think they play in certain situations that often make it easier for certain types of attackers to thrive. So I'm not sure how he's going to translate to a United side that I think are a little bit more conventional in possession um, and are going to be looking to create more chances against a block, which is probably the main rationale for signing a natural number nine striker. So with that said, I think Hoyland's movement is a little bit indecisive against blocks from the sample we have. And I think what that basically means is that you're looking at uh, getting a player who is a project, not really a finished prospect. And I don't necessarily think he has uh, potential to be one of the best strikers in Europe. He probably could do it. And, and when I say best, I mean like best five to ten. Um, he probably could do it, but I don't think he's like a guarantee and so I think paying big fees can be really difficult. One more thing I'll add is that I think in general, we tend to look at these strikers that have really good physicals and we tend to overrate their ability to learn how to do the sort of innate movement aspects of the game in their early 20s. When I don't really think that that's a guarantee, like I think it can be really difficult for strikers to actually develop those instincts. And those are a big deal in what differentiates good strikers from the best strikers uh, because they create goals for their teammates and they create goals for themselves with good movement. Yeah. So a couple of things to your second point, I think the general perception around when footballers and, and strikers in particular peak centers around the ages of 27, 28, 29, 30. I think that's the perce- the perceived peak time for top strikers. The, Reality is a bit different. There's actually a lot of good statistical work that's been done trying to quantify when players, but specifically goal scorers, peak. And the reality of it is most top goal scorers actually peak more around 24, 25 years of age and then trail off after that. And beyond that, you actually see more players who have incredibly high output in their early 20s and tail off at the in the middle and end of their 20s, as opposed to players who don't really produce a lot of goal-scoring output early on in their 20s and then become elite later. The the second profile there is actually the the far less frequent profile. So somebody like Michael Owen or Nicholas Anelka, that's a lot more common than somebody like RVP, who really didn't come into his own until later in his 20s and then as a result sort of had this shorter peak. 
obviously players develop and a 20 year old striker who's playing in a top five league at a relatively high level on a competitive team. That's a player who can wind up being a really good player, a really good striker, right? But when you're going to spend all this money and the goal scoring output really isn't there and he's already 20, he's at an age where historically the best strikers have been productive already at that age. Very productive. That That's a red flag to me. It's not a, it's not like a stop sign, but it's a red flag because really when you're spending money on a player, 60 million on a striker, 20 years old, you're kind of committing to that guy being your, your striker of the future. If you're going to make that commitment, I want all green flags personally, and I don't see all green flags with Hoyland, not just statistically, but you pointed out a few things, a few aspects of his game that show up on video that I don't think are so desirable. I just don't think this is a guy who is going to come in and be more than like a, a league average striker his first season, which obviously, you know, you can make the argument that United don't even have a league average striker right now. And so there's value to be had in that. But for me, it's a concern. I just don't think his most likely outcome is somebody who compares to the top strikers in the, in, in football. And I think yeah. that's the worry for me. So I, I actually think it would be really good for us to give an example of some a situation where Hoyland perhaps doesn't have optimal movement that I've seen. Sure. And I think the best example that I've seen in many Atalanta games is Atalanta are a very wing-oriented team. They love to get the ball out wide and then have movements to get the ball back inside. Um, and one thing I've seen with Hoyland a lot in what I've watched of him is that when he is when he's in the middle of the pitch and... I want you to, like, if you're listening to this, imagine he's between the two center backs on the last line. That's a good starting position for a striker. Um, And then the ball will go out wide, and he will be in the box, and he'll he'll be standing against the two center backs who are marking him. And then what Atalanta's wingers are obviously going to do is they're going to try and hit him with a cross. Um, And there are are players in behind Hoyland because Atalanta play with a number of inside forwards and advanced central midfielders. And so what I think Hoyland often needs to do in some of these situations is pick a post. So either he's going to run towards the the post nearest to the crosser, and he's going to try and get onto a ball that the crosser plays towards the, the front post, or he's going to make a run to the back post, take the center backs with him, and create the option for another player of Atalanta's to hit the front post. And there are reasons why he might make either move in any given scenario, but the important thing is that he's decisive and does something because when he stands still, that allows Atalanta center backs to just face up to him, know exactly where he is. And even if the delivery is perfect, they still have a really, really good chance of just getting to the cross before him. And so that's one example of a scenario where I think he can be a little bit decisive, uh, a little bit indecisive in settled possession. Yeah, I'd also add in, he's a bit of a, what what I call a channel runner, which is to say... He's a center forward who likes to spend a lot of time making runs between either the left center back and the left back or the right center back and the right back. That's not a bad thing in and of itself, but when too many of your runs become channel runs, you have a pretty you have an adverse effect on the team's ability to like you just said commit center backs um drop center backs deeper, which, you know, creates space throughout the pitch because when the defensive line drops, everybody, you know, the whole pitch becomes stretched. Um, and beyond that, a lot of the time what it's going to do is you make those channel runs. You the If Hoyland gets the ball, he's pulled out wide and then somebody else has to occupy and become that box threat. And that's okay if you have players who do that at a high level. United really don't at the moment. And if you're buying Hoyland, the idea is kind of that he be that box threat. So I have a little, I have some concerns with that from a profile perspective. But again, broad strokes here. Is this a player who I would like to see at United? Yes. I just, I'm not convinced that he's the guy. And 60 million to me is like, oh, we're spending on him because we think he's the guy. Yeah, that worries me. Yeah, Premier League strikers are really good right now. And I think if you rank Hoyland against them, at this exact moment, he comes out about average. Like, if you looked at all 20 starting strikers for next season's Premier League, if Rasmus Hoyland is one of them, I think you'd have him around 10th. Um, I think he has the potential to get better than that in his career. 
I just am doubtful he'll ever be of the level to challenge the likes of Harry Kane, Erling Haaland, or even like maybe even the level below those guys uh, with some of the other strikers that are currently playing in the Premier League. Yeah, I, so. I agree with you that I think he's probably somewhere around average, um, but I would have a slightly different take on it. I don't think the Premier League's striking quality right now is really that high. You've got two guys in Kane and Holland who I think are probably top yeah, three in the Yeah, I think world. you have a lot of good guys. I don't think you have a ton of stars. Yeah, I don't think there's a ton of elite talent. And the fact that Hoyland kind of doesn't even make the top end without there being a lot of elite talent is a bit worrying. But again, he's 20 years old. He's got some great physical attributes. He's got some aspects of his movement that are likable. He's got some decent technical skills. There's not nothing there. I'm 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 not saying like yeah. this is a terrible move. This is a terrible idea. I just have a lot of questions, um, which I'm always going to have with a 20 year old striker whose goal scoring output isn't amazing. Which his goal scoring output isn't amazing. It, it goes back to the fee ultimately. Yes. Yep. It goes back to the fee. All right. I think that's enough on Hoyland. We'll we'll talk about a couple more players first. Uh, we have a question from Grant Gendo. He said. Uh, Quite verbosely, and I quote, Scott McTominay. No punctuation. <laughs> no punctuation. That's it. Aaron, what are, you, what are your thoughts on Scott McTominay at this point in the summer? We really haven't spoken about him in a few months, I think. He just wasn't that, that relevant to the end of the run-in. But seems like there's discussion of him leaving. There's also discussion of him not leaving. What do you see here? What do you see as his role next season if he stays? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're letting on half the story here where we're going to talk about another midfielder in a minute that United are being linked to. And I'm going to posit that I think for United to sign that midfielder, they're likely going to have to sell Scott McTominay and possibly Fred. Um, and so I guess some of the questions here are, should United sell McTominay? And what happens if they don't? Um, and they keep him instead of signing a new midfielder. And so... Should United sell Scott McTominay? I think my answer is I think so. McTominay played 12 90s in the season's Premier League, and I think he started the first seven or so. So he's played about five Premier League matches since September. Um, I think that's a pretty clear sign that he's not only not seen as a starter, but he's not really seen as a big, uh, as a super viable alternative to Casemiro. Um, I also think that Going back to the discussion about Fred's technical ability, United are looking to have players who are in that upper technical echelon in the league on the ball. We want players who can play out of pressure, players who can pass forward, players who can carry the ball. And Scott McTominay and Fred, for whatever strengths they may offer, um, I think we all differ on on what we think. Um, they don't have those skills in their in their toolkit. And so I think it's likely that you're going to go, can we sell both and can we replace them? Now, what happens if United don't sell them? I think what you find is that McTominay ends up staying as Casemiro's backup. Um, he ends up playing when Casemiro's unavailable. I think United's mid other midfield options, you're looking at Mason Mount, Christian Eriksen, and maybe Fred can't really form a cohesive midfield. I think you need McTominay's physicality in there with any of those guys. And then I think Fred also becomes a useful option in certain matches, uh, especially if Mason Mount's not fit. Because you'll have matches where Mount's out, but you don't want to play Ericsson because he doesn't have the legs to compete. Um, and so they end up being a squad option, but ideally, yes, you do sell both of them and you get a new guy in. Yeah, I think I agree there. Um, yeah, I, I think McTominay, in an ideal world, this is the end of his spell at the club. Which brings us to who his theoretical replacement would be, and that's Sofian Amrabat, um, Moroccan international, had a huge World Cup, plays for Fiorentina. Um, Aaron, do you have any thoughts on this one? This is a for what it's worth, these links are significantly weaker than Onana for sure, and also the Hoyland links, I would say. Yeah, but there's there's some clear connections here. Uh, Amrabat played for Ten Hag at Utrecht. Yes, he did. I really like Amrabat as a player. Um, I think if you're looking for like a Man United comparison i think you're looking at someone like matic a little bit he really does the possession circulation stuff i think he's best as a sitting midfielder but he can also pair one 
Yeah, he's a, he's a very like tempo setting, highly progressive passer, good defensive positioning, does a lot of the fundamentals. Um, I think he can pair Casemiro, or I think he can pair Mason Mount. And at the reported price of twenty five million, he's twenty seven this year. So at at twenty five million pounds, it's actually a very fair price for a player of this caliber and position. Um, this archetype of player isn't really that common in the Premier League. I think he'd be better than most of the current players who do this role in the Premier League. If you look at the bottom half of the table, you're not going to see many of these. Um, my only real concerns with this signing, while I think it addresses a depth need that are, that's going to allow United to tactically play the way they want to more often throughout the next season, I think it leaves them short in the specific skills that they want to improve the current midfield options, um, which includes, you know, the things we talk about all the time, the extremely press-resistant and ball-carrying heavy um, midfielders. Romeo Lavia is always the name that we talk about. Um, And also that Romeo Lavia is really young. United's midfield is aging. Uh, Bruno is 30 in... by By next year, 2024, he turns 30. Casemiro will also be 32 by then. Um, Erickson is in his thirties. Fred is in his thirties. McTominay will be 28 next year. So you basically just have Mason Mount, um, Kabi Mainu or any other youngsters that you think might make it. Ama Diallo, if you consider him a midfielder, you don't really have much for the future of this midfield. And I think United need to get younger. I don't think Amrabat does that. Um, I don't think he makes them better at ball carrying, but he, he is a good player. I really like him. And the price is fair. So I won't be upset if they end up doing this deal. Yeah, I'm on the same page with you on that. I think if Lavia goes elsewhere, I'll be frustrated. It's looking likely at this point. But if you don't get Lavia, I think Amrabat is like about as close as you get, especially given the value to a perfect alternative. Um, But this midfield needs to get a lot younger. At the very least, Mount is young because if he hadn't, if he'd been of a different age profile, you really you wouldn't have any midfielders who you'd expect to be at the top level in like three years, which would have been a concern, but it looks like we're headed in the right direction there. So I think that wraps up Amrabat. Aaron, how do you feel about going to a break? And then we'll start back up with a couple more questions afterwards. Sounds like a great idea. Welcome back. In this past weekend's Q&A session, we got a couple of, we had sort of two groups that a set of questions fell into, and they had to do with tactical trends, but also new personnel and how the two would mesh. And so I want to get into these sort of two groups of questions. The first group had to do with defensive line height and sweeping. United obviously appeared to be on the brink of signing Andre Onana, Onana from Inter. Uh, Internationale, and we got a question from Joel Percival, which was, with Onana's ability to sweep and take pressure off the center backs in a high line, can Maguire make a revival at United if he isn't sold this summer? Aaron, what do you make of that? Yeah, so let's first talk about what impact Onana's going to have, because I think it's going to be a really difficult question and an interesting thing for a lot of people to grasp. I don't think United have had a goalkeeper like this, at least not in a very long time. Um, But essentially Onana is very proactive on the ball and he's a very proactive sweeper and he's going to allow United to take some degree of, or or have some degree of improved efficacy in their uh, ability to play a high line and, and deploy a high press what that means is that there's going to be less pressure on the center backs to defend in certain situations that maybe we'll get into after. But long story short, the question that Joel is asking is basically saying, are these situations heavily responsible for Maguire's decline as a United player and therefore improving how the goalkeeper deals with those situations makes it likely that his career is going to take another uptick? And I think my answer to that is no. 
Um, I think Maguire has declined for reasons outside. United's falling apart tactically at this point. It seems like he's not fully fit. He's lost a level of press resistance on the ball. I think either his decision-making has become more rash or his execution has become worse. Maguire is a very aggressive defender. He likes to step out of his line and challenge for the ball. And he's he was very effective at it in his prime despite being slow. But I think the margins were very fine. And I think what we're seeing is that he's getting on the wrong side of a lot of those margins a lot of the time now. And I don't really think those things can be attributed to David De Gea not being a good sweeper. Um, I think there are ways in which this will make the defense look better, which will make the individuals look better. But I don't think Maguire specifically is a key candidate to be one of the beneficiaries because I think he has been poor for other reasons outside this. Yeah, I think the thing with Maguire, obviously the conditions in the, at the club in the you know years preceding our most recent managerial change um, were not ideal for him. However, he physically, I personally, my perception of it is that he is not physically the player that he once was. And as a result, the decisions that he makes, these aggressive decisions that you alluded to, they don't pay off in the same way that they used to. And he, he gets embarrassed at a much higher rate than he did in his first season with United when he was actually quite effective. Beyond that, to a limited extent, I do think his game is not suited to a high line. I, I don't think it's, I don't think Maguire at his peak would have struggled with it the way I think people talk about it. But there's no denying that who he is now certainly is not suited to defending in in the open field. And I think that a lot of that will be happening regardless of who's playing goalkeeper. And so I think I think honestly the the time for Maguire to move on is now. Um, yeah, that, that's that's where I'm at with that. However, Joel also raises an interesting question. I think, which is, if you bring in Onana, is this team suddenly just going to play way higher up the pitch by just naturally by by virtue of having a goal a goalkeeper who's going to cover this ground? Is the out-of-possession approach just going to change drastically on the basis of this one thing? And so this is, I'm going to let you answer, but my take on this is, or at least let me take a step back. We've had this conversation before in the context of United surrounding Dean Henderson and David De Gea, specifically that stretch in the 2020-2021 season when Henderson I think started like 12 matches in a row in the Premier League, even after De Gea returned from injury. It looked like Henderson might have been the goalkeeper for United going forward. Obviously, it didn't work out that way. But during that period, United had a really good defensive record. Record, Their defensive line height was a bit higher. They seemed to be getting more from the goalkeeper position in terms of the stuff other than shot stopping. This turned into a dialogue about, oh, can't, isn't it so clear that if you have a goalkeeper who's willing to sweep, it just completely changes the way you defend? I don't think it is that cut and dry. I do think, don't get me wrong, a sweeper goal, a sweeper keeper with, you know, in, sweeper keeper in air quotes makes a huge difference to how a team plays. However, I am skeptical in general that it's, it has an immediate effect and that suddenly, it's just transformative for a side defensively. Um, specifically because it changes the parts of the pitch where defenders, midfielders, forwards have to engage, how they engage, the amount of space they have to cover, and where their teammates teammates will be relative to them if you were to change your defensive line height and how aggressive you are and how high up the pitch you're pressing. So... I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll let you go now, and then we, we can we can talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, I'm going to start with the theoretical of what are United going to try and achieve with Onana. And I think the situation that Joel is alluding to here is going to be something like United are going to try and play a high line. In particular, 
a high line implies they're going to try and press the opposition. If you play a high line and don't press the opposition, that's that's like asking to lose. Yeah. Um, because what you need to do when you play a high line is prevent the opposition from being able to create. So if you're not putting immediate pressure on the ball and your defenders are high up the pitch, it's very easy for the opposition defenders to play with time and space in behind your defense with as much as one or as as few as one or two passes. Professional footballers so can play the ball over the top under zero pressure. Yeah. The general principle there. So what you're going to have is you're going to have United's defenders higher up the pitch, and then you're going to be able to press higher, and that means you're going to win the ball more often in the opposition half. And with Onana, you're going to have the added security of the fact that in the event that the opposition try to play the ball over the top and get it past the reach of the defenders, but also quite far from Onana, he has high efficiency in his ability to get out to those places and be able to clear, deal with the ball, or start new attacks. And that allows you to play a higher line. It allows you to be more effective in your existing defensive line. All of that is true. However, it's not as easy as you just plug in a new goalkeeper and then suddenly you can play high line. You need to be able to be more effective in the press. You need to probably dial up the extent to which you, you press. Because right now, for example, the... the um, and I think another question we got from uh, from someone named James talked about pushing the line higher and engaging the fullbacks. So what that's alluding to is the fullbacks uh, pressing the opposition fullbacks uh, in possession. If they don't do things like that, the opposition fullbacks are going to have the opportunity to play balls over the top um, if you press higher, right? So little things like that that involve improving the pressing. Um, You're also going to need to improve the coordination between the defenders and the goalkeeper. They're going to need to be able to make calls in 50-50 zones of who's going to actually go to that ball, how they're going to deal with it, how they're going to reset possession. So as much as Onana definitely improves the potential for United to play a higher line and a more effective defensive line at dealing with balls over the top, I think overall we're still going to have to wait a while to see the full impacts of how much better this can really make United. I don't think it's going to be something we see in August. Yeah, I think it's actually quite possible that in the coming season, especially in the first half of the season, we see a lot more transition moments, a lot more 1v1s conceded defensively than we did for our better stretches of of last season. Just because if United do do what I think a lot of us are anticipating they do, and, and that is play more proactively, press more aggressively, use this, these new personnel to be a more athletic, risk-taking, out-of-possession side. If they do do that, there will be mistakes made. And though I do think a lot of the personnel that we have are suited to that now at this point, when you try to play a new way, and especially a a higher-risk way, in the process, you are going to have some really ugly moments. And I anticipate ugly moments. And I wouldn't be surprised if either A, United are perceived to have gotten away with a few early on in the season, you know, conceded some really big chances and, you know, gotten away with it. Like I said, you know, not conceded and then maybe won a match that they should have drawn or whatever. Or... The alternative is I wouldn't be surprised if United started the season slow because they dropped some points simply from conceding one or two really big chances because they're trying to play this new way and taking this new risk. And that is part of the process. And so, yeah, I, I just personally, I like to be prepped for that possibility because I think it's, it's, it's a real possibility. All right, so I think we've covered sweeping. Another thing that I think is very relevant, we got a lot of questions about with regard to Onana, is build-up play. We had a few questions that I liked. We had one from Anoop Nike, and let me know if I'm saying that name right. I apologize if not. And they asked, if ETH is going with a game plan where we don't get a first phase build-up eight, then could you explain the permutations around how he could fashion the build-up? And we got another question from Sai. Given our midfield lacks the technical flair and isn't really press-resistant, how will we work around it? Will we see Shaw in the heart of our buildup, finally? 
Will we get to see Madrid's Casemiro, given Onana comes in and decreases the pressure on him for buildup? Just as a note, I think when Sai says Madrid's Casemiro, they mean the moments under Zidane when Madrid pushed Casemiro higher up the pitch and used him more like a, a box threat than they, as a contributor contributor in early buildup. And this was a pretty long period uh, under Zidane. I'm, I want to say it was between 2016 to 2018, but that's just me going off of my memory. Yeah, it was pretty much between 2016 and 2018. It also came back, I think, in, in the recent season when Zidane returned and they won La Liga. Starting there, will we get to see Madrid-Casemiro? I think this more depends on how Ten Hag decides to use Mount. Whether, Regardless of how good Onana is, you're still going to need midfielders who are occupying this space because Onana needs someone to pass to. And so whether it's Mount or Casemiro, I think will determine the ultimate role for Casemiro. Relatedly, Given our midfield lacks the technical flair and isn't really press resistant. I'm going to start by saying I think the midfield does have a lot of technical ability. I think we want to separate these two ideas. Because um, I know what Sai is saying and Sai is correct. But I, I want to be really specific here for everyone else. The midfield has a lot of very strong technical ability. Casemiro, Bruno, Mount, they can all pass creatively. They can all pass progressively. Mount is a really strong ball carrier. Um, a lot They can all score goals. There's a ton of technical prowess in this midfield, but the specific ability that might be missing is this press resistance. That's the ability to face up against a lot of pressure from the opposition and consistently play forward through it, especially in deep areas. And the answer to how it will be worked around has somewhat to do with Onana, but not as much directly as a lot of people in the questions that we got this week were alluding to. So what Onana's going to do is he's going to allow you to more effectively get the ball into midfield. That means better passes to the midfielders. Think of the situation where De Gea uh, passes that ball to Erickson against Brentford and Erickson gets overwhelmed and United concede a goal. Hopefully situations like that happen less in United's attempts to play out of the back with a goalkeeper like Andre Onana. He's going to make better decisions. He's able to chip the ball over the first line of opposition and get it to the fullbacks or or even to the forwards if the space is open, he can go long. Um, but he's also going to be able to play these nice passes into midfield that are easier to control and take in stride. And that's going to improve the press resistance of the midfielders, right? It's going to make their jobs easier. However, United still do not have a press resistant midfielder and Onana doesn't solve that issue. There are likely to be situations, we don't know the full extent because I don't think we have a great idea of how Mount's going to perform in this deep role, but... The ideal you're looking at is Frankie Diong, where he can basically receive, has full awareness of the space around him, and with the opportunity, can turn and carry into the space ahead of him. United are still not going to be able to do that. And to work around that, they're going to be reliant on being able to get the ball into and out of midfield quicker, because they don't have the midfielders who can keep the ball for long periods of time in the center of the pitch under pressure. Which is something that a lot of top teams face. Frankie Diong profiles are rare, and they're often split between the premium like three or four clubs in Europe. Um, And it would be nice for United to go for a player who could be one of those types, but this isn't a totally uncommon issue. I think amongst European teams. Yeah. I think broadly, I agree with, with that. I think definitely agree. I think this is a very technical midfield. I would go a step further it's very technical in a specific way, though, which is exactly what you were saying, I know, but I wanted to get more specific for everybody listening. Technicality can mean very different things depending on the context of what you're talking about, and we use it differently episode to episode, which is probably something we should stop doing and and, and be more careful about. Because in the context of build-up, deep build-up, technicality basically means press resistance, right? It's your ability to perform technical tasks under pressure in high-pressure situations. This is what Sai was alluding to, for the yep, record. Exactly. So I'm, I'm just trying to elaborate on this. In almost any other context, technical ability basically means something more nebulous, which is like your ability to manipulate the ball. And that, has, that, that can be distance passing, that can be ball striking, that can be, you know, dribbling, press resistance, maybe, but probably not. Going back to the issue at hand, I agree 
Onana coming in does not alleviate the need for a press resistant eight at all. Uh, I don't know if you said those words that clearly, but that's how I feel about it. Different question is whether Mount does. I think that is a more interesting question. I think maybe a little. I do think there are going to be a lot of matches this season where we see Mount play as the deepest midfielder when we're building out of pressure. I also think Mount is a capable ball carrier. I don't think he has very much experience playing this role. And I think it is dangerous to assume that he can. But I don't think it's impossible that you you get decent production from him at, at, at this position and, and that he contributes positively and, and sort of helps deal with this bottleneck that we yeah. have. Yeah, I've been watching Mount for a couple days now. I've, I've seen a couple 90s and specifically matches where he's played deep. And I'll save the results for two weeks from now, but I don't think it's as simple as he's a number 10. We're not going to play him at number six. He can't do that. So I'll let you go on though. Yeah, no. So I, I think it's actually probably a, a likely configuration that we see Casemiro push up and mount drop. So you actually mentioned that that pass to Erickson against Brentford early on last season from De Gea. I think in a similar situation, you'll see Mount in Erickson's place there. And I think that's a positive change. I think Mount is more athletic, more capable of turning on the ball. Yeah, those two things, really. However, I think his role will, will change pretty drastically depending on the opposition. I think there will be other matches where Casemiro is the deepest. I think there will be other matches where it's a pivot. Um, and I think it'll also change game state to game state within, within a match. So we've got a lot going on there. I still think you need another player um, who can be this specialist. Because you're right, it's a common problem. But I don't think it's a common problem for the truly best sides. Which, again, I think you said. Um, Barcelona had Frankie, but they also had Sergio Busquets, who can play in these areas, even though he's not a ball carrier. He's extremely, he was extremely press-resistant. Real Madrid have like three of them. You could even say four of them, depending on whether you think Kamavinga is that. In Modric, Kroos to a lesser extent, but he's still very good in, in early build-up phases. Choameni, Kamavinga. City have Rodri, who's one of the best in the world at this. Um, they get a shift from Bernardo Silva when they want to uh, in deeper areas. The same is true of Gundogan, um, who is now at Barcelona. To further the point... Um, PSG have Marco Verratti, um, Liverpool have Thiago. The, these players exist and top sides have them. And it's an issue that United don't have them, regardless of who's playing goalkeeper, regardless of who's playing center back. This is, it's like, um, a lock system. Like if you're familiar with, uh, like the Panama Canal, for instance, the way you have to make elevation changes. You, 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 are you familiar with this concept? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can... It is completely irrelevant whether the water level is high enough for you to transition to the next lock if an ensuing lock is completely empty and incapable of being filled. Does that make sense? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great if you have a goalkeeper who can get the ball to the midfielders, but if the midfielders can't handle the ball properly it's not going to make a huge difference regardless of who's getting the ball to them it'll be a it'll be a, an issue further down the, the chain so perhaps it will cost you less but it will still cost you drastically replacing a goalkeeper doesn't allow you to fix the issue of the midfielders getting the ball to the forwards it might help like it might make things easier for your current midfielders it might mean you get into midfield often, so probabilistically you get into the forward areas more often. But it's not going to mean that you change how you play out of midfield enough for it to alleviate the need for press resistance in the midfield. Yeah, so I think that covers that. Um, I think we had another question in this sphere that I want to hit on. This is from Aditya, uh, who asked... Can you shield pressing triggers in your back six and still have good buildup? Considering we now have a goalkeeper who's good with his feet. Uh, don't jinx it. The Onana deal is not finalized, but the question stands. 
Yeah, you can't. Um, the way I would imagine this, and this is, again, completely my opinion, what you have is like a, a graph that declines slowly and then increases the rate at which it declines in terms of how many players you have that cannot play and build up and how adverse the effects are. And obviously, the players aren't just good or bad in build up. There are, it, it's a spectrum, but basically, what I'm trying to say is the effect of having one player who is bad in build-up, is obviously going to be worse than the effect of having zero players who are bad in build-up. It goes back to that, can you cheat players in a press discussion that was going on a year or two ago? Um, To which the answer is, no, you cannot cheat any players in a press, but the effect of having multiple players who are bad at pressing is way more adverse than the effect of having one player who is bad at pressing. Similar idea. So, what you want is to have as many good players as possible. But if you only have one or like maybe two players who can't play and build up, it's obviously not going to be as bad as last season where United had often half of their players who were just unable to pass forward under pressure, receive under pressure, carry the ball, reliably hit their man with their ball striking, and so on. It's a compounding thing. When you have more players who can't do this thing, it is way worse than if you just have one player. But overwhelmingly, going back to the same conversation we were just having about press-resistant midfielders, the best teams in the world don't have weak links in possession. They don't. I hate using cities and examples as often as we do, but the reality is they're the best best team in the world, and they showed that this season. They have players who you could argue are defensive specialists, like, for instance, Kyle Walker or Nathan Ake, but those players are still really good on the ball. They can still do basically anything they need to, to play through pressure. Are they fantastic? Are they going to play unbelievable passes? No, but they're incredibly secure. And United have players who are not incredibly secure, who they rely on consistently. And that ultimately will have to change. I think we're pretty good on that. And it goes back to the, you know, Fred and McTominay for Amrabat discussion as well. That's an example of a change for players who cannot do this to players who probably can. Yep. All right. Uh, we got a question. This is one of my favorite questions we've gotten in general. It's a question from Bashar Deeb. And Bashar asks, thank you for all the amazing content. That's not a question, but this part is a question. You keep using the term press resistant, which I can understand and see with the naked eye, but I'm curious to learn about the metrics that you use to measure press resistance. Aaron, what do you think about this? What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love this question too. Thank you so much for the kind words, Bashar. Um, it's interesting because I think we are very much branded as as data people and we love data, but this is the point at which I'm going to be a data skeptic because often what we have um, in, in football especially is a very complicated game that um, has many different phases and not only many different phases, but unlike a sport like say NFL, there's no, um, there's no stopping points to transition between these phases. It they they blend and they're comp they're, they can be modeled in many different ways and in public analytics at least right now the current state is a lot of aggregated statistics over all situations or over multiple situations um that give you a very very broad strokes indicator about players but don't actually give you specific information dribbling is a great example because we spent a lot of this episode talking about players who dribble from deep, right? But dribbling from deep is not the same thing as dribbling down the wings. And it's not the same thing as dribbling from fullback. And it's not the same thing as strikers running at the opposition in transition. Those are all very different dribbling scenarios with very different typical success rates, very different top players in terms of their technique. Um, and so you can't just say, like, look at someone like Bakayo Saka, for example, and be like, okay, Bakayo Saka would be a great press-resistant defensive midfielder because he has good dribbling stats and he doesn't lose the ball that much from the dribble. It's a lot more complicated than that. And I think that makes public analytics as a whole very limited uh, to some extent. So instead of building um, a statistical profile of the perfect press-resistant defensive midfielder, I would look at statistics that give me an idea that they might be um, and a combination of stats that do that so the first thing i would look at is a lot of touches in the defensive third Um, this is going to show you that these players typically 
get the ball very deep. Second thing I'm going to look for is a lot of dribbles completed relative to midfielders. You want players who are doing this at a high volume, and you want players who are dribbling from those deep positions that we talked about in the first metric. And then the third thing I'm going to look at is um, ball losses, specifically miscontrols, dispossessions, um, failed passes, but specifically failed non-progressive passes. So if the midfielders are progressing the ball a lot, if they're dribbling a lot, they're more likely to lose the ball. But if you have a player who completes 10 dribbles a game, but also loses the ball 10 times in their own third in front of the goalkeeper every game, (laughs) I mean, it's an extreme example, but that's not going to work. And so you want to have those, those three metrics would give me a good idea that a player is probably effective at dribbling out of pressure from deep without losing the ball. Um, and I think you'll find it very hard to find those players. I don't think every press-resistant player will be covered by those three metrics, and I don't think every player who hits those three metrics will be press-resistant. But I think that gives you a good basis to work off. Yeah. Yeah, so there are a couple of ways you can aggregate. I First of all, I totally agree with what you just said there. I think there really isn't one good publicly available metric to quantify this. There aren't even really multiple, uh, which is to say even the the approach you're suggesting is not perfect. Um, Yeah, no. It just gives you a list from which you can then start to, to do video scouting. The reason, well, first of all, this isn't to say that I don't think this is quantifiable, it's more to say that you need good quality raw data and then much better process to to process that data to get metrics that actually tell you about press resistance. Because right now what you have with publicly available data, for the most part, uh, for instance, on FBref, which is a website that I'm sure a lot of you know and I really like, it's aggregations that they've done on their own or that their data provider has done and given to them that tell you things descriptively, like for instance, touches in the def- touches in your own third, which could be interesting in context, could be interesting if you aggregated them differently uh, with a specific goal in mind, but that's not what these data providers do because that's not really what, the, that's not what the purpose is of FBref, right? Uh, FBref is more about having the numbers available uh, than it is about creating new, cutting-edge, really incisive numbers. So I'm sure there are some clubs that have metrics that can quantify this to a certain extent. But also, I think, based on what I know and based on the conversations I've had with people who work in analytics at clubs, for the most part, what they do is what Aaron just described in a, in a slightly different way with slightly different numbers. But what they do is they have an aggregated version of this event data and they make a list of players who fits a couple of criterion and then they go watch video. Uh, So you can get an idea where to start on this particular issue with data, but what it comes down to ultimately is, is watching the players play. We got a question from Draken thoughts on the sales of Iqbal and Laird. Are United putting in any buyback clauses? Aaron, I thought, I think you had a couple quick thoughts on this. Yeah, so the Iqbal sale uh, got a lot of criticism before we found out that United have a buyback clause. We don't know how much that buyback clause is for. They also have a 40% sell-on clause, which means if Utrecht decide to sell Iqbal for $20 million, United would get $8 million from that. Overall, I think this makes sense. I think Iqbal seems like he could be a pretty talented player. However, I think he's not first, and I'm relatively sure he's not second in the queue for young central midfielders at United. Uh, Kabi Mainu, to me, is the most talented young central midfielder at United. Uh, Hannibal Medjbri has played minutes on loan in the championship now, um, which Iqbal has not, despite them being the same age. So I think you're looking at Iqbal going out on loan. Uh, I think, like, assertions that he could have been impactful in the first team, they may not be untrue, but I think we're asking a little bit much of both him and the management to just throw him into Premier League games. And so you're looking at at least a loan, probably two or three before he's really ready to play at Premier League level. And you're banking on those loans going well. It just makes a lot more sense to sell him to a club where they have incentive to develop him because 
they're going to be selling him for a higher fee later on, and he's going to be part of their project if they don't. It gives him a more settled environment. He gets to play in a top league. Like, he's playing in the Eredivisie. And, yeah, you're basically just getting Iqbal a move that's good for him. As for Laird, he hasn't really been able to kick on due to injuries. Um, I think as a fullback, he has very much proven that he can be effective in the final third on his loans. I don't think we've seen that much of him in buildup, which is a really important responsibility of fullbacks at United. You see players like Shaw, Dalo, and Malasia, who all have a variety of skills in that department. And I think with Laird, you'd be taking a gamble on that by putting him in the first team. I don't think it's like a guarantee. And so, again, you're selling him on. He has a sell-on clause. I don't think he has a buyback. The moral of the story here is academies, you're only going to get your very best players into the first team. The goal is to get the rest of them playing in top leagues or basically any professional league. But obviously, the bigger the league, the better for them. Um, And this is what successful academies do. They make money on the sales of their players that, that's how they keep the academies running. The players go on to have good careers. You're contributing to the football world. This is just normal business. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know if you... I don't think you touched on this here, but you've said previously in the past that if you promote one player to the senior side every year, that's success. I see these two sales as uh, an aspect of that. Uh, or or yeah. a side effect of that goal. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't see Iqbal as the first player who would have come in next season. Um, if you count Ama Diallo, I think he's the most likely. After that, I would love to see, you know, Kabi Menu or Alvaro Fernandez. Yeah, yeah. I We, we got Garnacho last season. If you look at Moyes' tenure or Van Hall's tenure or... Mourinho or Solskjaer or Rangnick, you're not going to find more than one player per season who was actually very successful uh, in their promotion to the first team. And so if Ten Hag is able to do one player per season, I think that's good. Agreed. All right, a quick no details, and then we're going to wrap up this week's episode. Aaron, who would you say are your favorite band or bands? I'll let you say a few if you can't decide on one. I talked about Paramore already. Saw them live a few weeks ago. Always been one of my favorite bands. It was a dream come true. Um, for those of you who are Paramore fans, I feel like there's an intersection between Paramore fans and the football analytics community. I'm not sure why. but It does seem to be, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my favorite part of this concert was, I think, when they invited a guy from the audience to play the guitar bit on Misery Business, and he nailed it. And it was incredible. Okay. The second, uh, okay, no, okay, so I'll pick Paramore for a new band. My other favorite current band is Haim. Um, they're a band of three sisters. They make mostly, like, pop music, but I think they make really good pop music. Um, if you want to ask me about old bands, I listen to tons of old bands. The Beatles, I think that's, like, an obvious one. Abbey Road is one of my favorite albums. Um, Animals by Pink Floyd, also one of my favorite albums. I was telling you, I just bought a Fleetwood Mac t-shirt yeah. that I'm hyped to wear. It's like the one with the Rumors album cover, which is like the beige-ish color. So it's like a beige-colored t-shirt. It's awesome. Um, I love Fleetwood Mac. ABBA. Yeah, I could go on. Santana, if that counts as a band. I mean, I feel like he kind of owns the show, but like he's, he's got a band. I think it counts. Yeah, we'll allow it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you would like Santana a lot as well. Yeah, I do so. like Santana a lot. Um, okay, I'll let you go. Sure. Um... Yeah, I like those. I like Paramore, love Fleetwood Mac, um, Santana's Fire. My personal favorites, the first time I had to answer this question, again, just a reminder to to those of you listening, we had to record this whole episode over again. So Aaron and I have actually had this conversation. (laughs) We had this conversation four hours ago. But um, first time I had to come up with these answers, I I was really struggling because a lot of the music I listen to is solo acts for whatever reason. I, I couldn't explain it. First name that came to mind for me were, were the Arctic Monkeys. I love the Arctic Monkeys. Um, probably at this point as much a nostalgia thing as it is a, uh, a true love for their music, which is awesome. Uh, but it's what I grew up listening to sort of in my adolescence. Uh, beyond that, Gypsy Kings were my number one band a few years ago. They do sort of like neo-flamenco. Um, 
were most prolific during the 90s. Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, they're pretty famous. Um, Otherwise, what else do I listen to? Um, I saw Saint Motel live earlier this year. Awesome. Not sure if they're one of my favorite bands, but love them. Uh, Fleet Foxes I'm seeing soon live, which I'm really excited about. I love that's Fleet so Foxes. That's so cool. Uh, that's great. Um, yeah, that'll be fun. I think I mentioned Bon Enfant. Um, yeah, the, you did. Yeah. Excuse me to any of our Francophone listeners. I butchered that. But <laughs> awesome music. Um, you were recently in Montreal. I found them while I was in Montreal uh, a few years ago. Um, yeah. Love them. Uh, I feel like I'm missing an important one. Uh, dang. Yeah, I was saying this on our first edition of this. I I love Montreal. It's a great city. And I also was there last week for the Jazz Festival. And the Jazz Festival in Montreal is a total street party with like amazing, amazing free music. I I highly recommend going if you ever get the chance. Yeah. No, I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, one of my good friends is a is a huge jazz fan, um, so he's always trying to get me to go to jazz festivals. It's personally not my favorite genre, but I do enjoy it. Are you into like old hip hop music? Yes. Okay, my favorite act um, that I saw at the jazz festival. It was this guy named DJ Premier. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but what he did essentially was he had a band. Um, like the band had a saxophonist, a trumpet, uh, an electric guitar, a bassist, a drummer, like a jazz drummer, um, and a couple other instruments. And he's a DJ and and he did, he goes back to like the nineties hip hop scene. So he was playing like classic nineties hip hop tracks and the band was doing all of the instrumentation over the track with like drum solos and like the, the, all of the instrumentalists were like top, top notch. It was one of the coolest things I've seen live to the point where like it started pouring rain. There were probably like 10,000 people there. It started pouring rain and everyone was just pulling out umbrellas because they're like, we're not leaving. Like we, we have to catch the end of this. So we were just like in a sea of umbrellas watching this concert. That's it was sweet. incredible. That's sweet. That reminds me of um actually a band, probably one of my favorite bands actually is Krongbin. Um who are like neo-psychedelic. I mentioned them earlier when we had this conversation. (laughs) But the reason it reminded me was I went to, I saw them live last year and they, at the end of their, at the end, sort of the second half of their concert was just them continuously rolling between different covers of other artists and like doing very serious, like different interpretations of them to the point where you get halfway through the song and you'd be like, oh my gosh, I know what song this is. Because they'd like, tweaked it so much that it was like there was something in the back of your head that told you you should know what it was but you couldn't figure it out and then suddenly it was there <laughs> just so cool that's great they're incredibly talented like technically as artists the drummer is is yeah one, one of the best drummers i've ever seen uh live um otherwise i listen to a lot of hermanos gutierrez which is like a like western instrumental i think you might actually like them and then I had another uh, pretty big one, but it's 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 gone. It's left my mind. So uh, we'll call it at that. They, they, I think that's enough bands uh, to to send the yeah. listeners go, listening to. Between the double record of new of no details today, I think we fired through like a ton of different bands. So. <laughs> we have, or or the same bands twice. Well, I, don't I know. think a bit of both, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. No, listen, guys, like we. Um, we really want to make sure that this podcast is now we're like almost a year in and we really want to make it good. And like, honestly, if you guys have any feedback, if you're loving what we do, just like send us a note, love to know what you guys want to hear. We want to make this as good as possible for you. And we have some huge stuff planned over the next few weeks. So hopefully it, uh, it, it transpires as well as we planned it. Yeah. And, and if you, if you guys listen, uh, if you listen frequently, if you have any thoughts, whether, you know, constructive criticism or, or just want to say hi to us. We read all of the reviews um, on our on the podcast on every platform because we want to hear if you think something is wrong with the podcast that we can improve. Please leave us a review. Even if it's a one-star review, we, <laughs> we want to make this better and make it a good listening experience for you guys. Yeah, on and honestly, on a general note, the support's been incredible lately. Like, we... I mean, it's been great since we started, but 
in the last few weeks it's it's totally wild seeing like not only the number of streams but like the countries that you guys are listening from and like all of the all of the different tweets and yeah some of the things we've been able to do we're we're really i'm having a great time and i know cases too so thank you so much yeah it's been it's been really really cool i think especially you mentioned the the countries everyone's listening to it's really cool to see how global united fandom really is i think our sixth most listened to uh location is singapore which is awesome and i never would have known there were so many people in singapore who supported united um our fourth most listened is oslo i recently learned there are a ton of norwegian united fans super cool really cool i think in our top 10 most listened to locations we've got lagos nigeria Accra, ghana singapore um so just just cool to to know that you guys are, are listening to us all over the place. So uh, pretty special. Thanks for listening, guys. Um, and we'll we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details podcast. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor you can follow at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week and see you next time.